You're listening to The Garrett Ashley Mullet Show on Anchor FM. I'm Garrett Ashley Mullet, and I want to talk about everything. Hello, and welcome to another episode of The Garrett Ashley Mullet Show. This is, can you guess, Garrett Ashley Mullet. Coming to you from Greeley, Colorado, it is June 11th, 2021, episode 76 of season 3, episode 141 of this podcast. We're going to do one more in the And This Is Why We Got Married series for right now, today, in this episode, and then we'll move on to some other topics, so those don't pile up too high, and then I think we'll come back to the series again, but I want to tie up some loose ends before I get carried away, and then I want to give the matter some more thought. Yesterday, in part two, we talked about how to have a healthy marriage, how to have a functional marriage, and I made the following claim. I said, and I quote myself, in a healthy marriage, in a functional marriage, You're serving your spouse, your spouse is serving you, and together you're serving God in the way that you serve one another. And we need to be mindful of that. End quote. On this point, you may be asking yourself, where is this idea of husbands serving their wives and wives serving their husbands found in the scriptures? Well, I'm glad you asked, and I shall endeavor to tell you. For starters, Let's consider Ephesians 5, 22 to 23. Paul writes, Wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, his body, and his himself, its Savior. Now, as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit in everything to their husbands. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church. And gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. In the same way, husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. For no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it, just as Christ does the church, because we are members of his body. Therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This mystery is profound, and I am saying that it refers to Christ and the church. However, let each one of you love his wife as himself, and let the wife see that she respects her husband. Now, this isn't saying that every Christian man loves his wife as perfectly or blamelessly as Christ loved the church. This isn't saying that every Christian man lives up to this any more than it is to say that the excellent wife described in Proverbs 31, 10 through 31, is every Christian woman. But, What the aforementioned is talking about is an ideal. This is the target we're aiming for. Women need love, and men need 
respect. And since we have these commands, I'm assuming that with God's help, men are capable of loving their wives and women are capable of respecting their husbands. And who wouldn't want that? Now I'm going to go off on a sidebar for a minute and I'll come back, but bear with me. Very often in our day, I hear Proverbs 31 mentioned as an ideal for women to shoot for. But always, Proverbs 31 is mentioned with a lot of qualifiers because women don't need to be discouraged. They don't need to be told that they're not all these things and then feel bad or guilty or ashamed or embarrassed or defensive. And so we'll mention Proverbs 31, this excellent wife who is so valuable, who is so praiseworthy, whose works will praise her in the gates. We mention this Proverbs 31 ideal, but not as a realistic attainable thing, just as an idea. It's just an idea. It's just a suggestion. And if a woman is not at all trying to embody the Proverbs 31 ideal, that's no big deal. There's lots of reasons. That's okay. Life is hard. We understand. Don't you understand that life is hard? How dare you hold up this unrealistic body image for women to compare themselves against and feel inadequate in? You'll never notice, you'll never remark, you'll never hear a similar kind of qualification and managing expectations with regards to men and what Paul writes in Ephesians chapter 5. When husbands are told to love their wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, when we are told as husbands to love our wives in the same way that Christ loved the church, we are never told all of those qualifying things that women are told with regards to Proverbs 31. We're never told this is an unrealistic ideal that you can't meet and we don't want you to beat yourselves up over it and life is hard. Don't you know? Life is hard. Life is hard and if you don't love your wife perfectly like Christ loves the church perfectly, that's okay, right? Just do your best. You'll never hear that kind of sermon, that kind of conversation. In fact, very often when a group of husbands get together, Christian husbands in the church to talk about this passage from Ephesians 5, they will say, this is a hard standard and I don't live up to it. And they will feel embarrassed and discouraged and apologetic, and they will strive to meet the standard regardless. Or at least they'll admit and be the first ones to admit, this is not me. This is not how I am. Very often I fail to meet this standard. And that's true. That's true that we do fail to meet the standard. That's why we needed Jesus to begin with, is that we could not meet the standard on our own. We could not save ourselves. We were at odds with God, and we were a broken creation that needed to be restored, and that still needs to be restored, but we have the promise of restoration, and that is a kind of restoration for right now, even though the fulfillment of it 
in all its breadth and depth is something we are still looking forward to in the future, in God's good timing. But what do you do with ideals? What do you do with these unrealistic, supposedly unrealistic images of what we should be aspiring to? This perfection that we don't match up to. What do you do with that standard? When you realize there's the standard and I don't meet it, what then? In the case of women, I'm fine with telling my wife, telling my daughter, telling other ladies, this is an ideal and there's grace when you're trying to pursue this or embody this mentality, these attributes, and you don't perfectly all the time. I'm good with saying there's grace there. The question I have is, why isn't there more grace on the other side of the equation? Well, there ought to be. And actually, if this is written to us and we are Christian men and women, the way that Christ loves the church is he is gracious towards us. He's long-suffering. He's patient. He is continuing to sanctify and refine us and grow us and work with us where we're at. He's not settling for where we're at as if this is the way it's always going to be. And we need to know that even as we are thanking God for his grace and his patience and his kindness to us in our present state. When we read that husbands are to love their wives as Christ loved the church, we see that he lays his life down for his wife, the husband does. And the common illustration of this is that somebody breaks into your home, the man is the one who goes and confronts that intruder. He doesn't send his wife to do that, to risk life and limb. He tells her to call 911 or to grab the firearm and to wait here. I'll go check it out. But there's more to it than that. There's more to it than going and fighting and going down in a blaze of glory to save your lady. There's also the day in, day out grind of difficulty, of work, of addressing issues that come up in the home and outside the home. There is the day-to-day working for the benefit of your wife, if you're a husband, if you're a Christian husband. You're not putting your wife up as a god or a goddess. She doesn't become an object of worship for you. You serve her in the same way that Christ served the church, loved the church. You love your wife as Christ loved the church. Well, we have to remember in context, how is it that Christ loved the church? Christ didn't love the church in a vacuum. Christ loved the church as he was submitting to the Father's will. And part of the way that Christ loved the church and loves the church is by exercising authority over the church. So when Christ was working out his public ministry for the estimate is three years, but however long, from the time he is baptized by John in the Jordan and goes into the desert for 40 days and nights to be tempted by the devil until he's arrested, tried, 
flogged, and crucified. That span of time, Jesus does more than just wash his disciples' feet. He does wash his disciples' feet, but he does more than that. That's not all there is to loving your wife as Christ loved the church. You don't just wash your wife's feet day in and day out. Every day I come home from work and I give her a foot rub. There's more to it than that. So it behooves us as we're reading this passage to go back through and do a survey of the Gospels and to look at how did Jesus interact with his disciples. He taught them. He led them. He conversed with them. He ate with them. He walked with them. He encouraged them. Sometimes he challenged them. Sometimes he rebuked them. Sometimes he chided them. Sometimes he expressed disappointment if they were quibbling about some trivial thing, like which of us is the greatest? Which of us will be the greatest or who is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? Because they were just having an argument amongst themselves over who is the greatest, who is his favorite. One of the ways that Jesus loved his disciples, and that gives us a picture of how he loves the church because his disciples were and are part of the church. One of the ways that Jesus loved the church is by exercising authority over the church, leading, teaching, correcting, instructing, giving commands, and then laying out clear expectations that those commands, those teachings, those instructions, those corrections would be followed. We don't think of that in our culture, in our day-to-day as love. In fact, it's very common for us to say love when we're talking about something that we just really enjoy, we just really like. Oh, man, I love Chick-fil-A. Man, I love Bulldogs Pub and Grub Pizza. Man, I love fill-in-the-blank. I love this thing. And what we mean by that is I really enjoy this thing. Okay, well, there's maybe an aspect of that which is appropriate. We should enjoy our wives, and I do believe that Christ enjoys the church after a fashion, and we want our interactions with one another as the church, our interactions with the Great Commission, engaging on that piece that we're commanded to. We want our prayers and our giving and our serving of one another to be enjoyed by Christ. Yes, and I believe he does enjoy us, and there's a sense in which That is a part of what is meant by love, but that's not really what this is talking about in this passage. When we're commanded to love one another as Christ loved us, when we're commanded as husbands to love our wives, that's not first and foremost talking about enjoyment. Even though enjoyment of our wife is biblical and good and right and proper and appropriate and needful, when we're commanded to love, That is telling us to serve. That is telling us to look to the good and to the benefit of this person. To do what is in their interest. To do what is good for them. To seek and pursue their peace. Their shalom. We are pursuing that. We're working and striving towards that goal. How did Jesus pursue 
the peace and seek the welfare and serve his disciples? How does he do all those things for the church even today, now? He seated at the right hand of the Father. So it's not all past tense. It is present tense. And the way he does that now is different. And I'm not suggesting that we are emulating sitting at the right hand of the Father in the present. And this passage says, Love your wives as Christ loved the church, past tense. Gave himself up for her that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy without blemish. In the same way, husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself, for no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it just as Christ does the church, because we are members of his body. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother, hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. So this is not just talking about your physical body, but it is. It's okay for this to be talking about our physical body, but it's also talking about our spiritual state, our spiritual condition, our soul, our mind, our heart, the totality of our person. We are seeking the emotional, mental, spiritual, and, yes, physical well-being of our wives when we love them as Christ loved the church. That is the goal. You can say that's a lofty goal. You can say that is difficult. That's a challenge. Sometimes that's frustrating. Sometimes you don't want to do that. You can say, and I would agree with you, that sometimes when men are accused of not having done this very well because their wives are discontent, that this verse is used in a manipulative way to basically give the woman a trump card and to say, I'm not feeling very loved right now, therefore you need to do what I want you to do. When this verse is used in a manipulative way to try and force men to giving their wife whatever she wants, that is not biblical. That doesn't pass the sniff test. The question we need to ask is, do we look at the relationship between Jesus and his bride, the church, in the same way? I think the simple answer is no. That's difficult because men don't always meet this standard. And so what do you do when men don't meet this standard? Now, yesterday in that episode, I talked a bit about 1 Corinthians 7, 1 through 16, And one of the things that is nestled in here is that if any brother has a wife who is an unbeliever, she consents to live with him, he should not divorce her. If any woman has a husband who is an unbeliever, he consents to live with her, she should not divorce him. So there's an equal opportunity for men and women to be married to a spouse who does not know God, who does not know Christ, who does not honor Christ as Lord. There's equal opportunity for men and women to be unequally yoked, to be married to somebody who's not a Christian who's not a believer. And when they find themselves in that situation, I'll bet you anything that wives who are unbelieving are not submitting to their husbands. Husbands who are unbelieving are not loving their wives as Christ loved the church. That's not a goal. It's not something they're aiming for. If they happen to accidentally hit it every now and then or seem to, maybe, kind of, sort of, it's not consistent. It's not their goal. They're just trying to do the thing that works. 
It just so happens that this is a good way to arrange your marriage, whether you're a Christian or not. And as Christians, as we're trying to honor God in the way that we carry out our marital arrangement, we honor God by trying to do this thing. And that's a big part that should be the main reason why we're doing this thing. But also, besides, there's a practical benefit. And the scriptures give us promises of practical benefits as reasons why we should do things. And so it's not wrong, it's not selfish, it's not unspiritual to say, hey, there are practical benefits to loving your wife. You want to have a good marriage? That shouldn't be the ultimate goal or an idol, but that is a good goal. And that is a goal that God tells us we should have for ourselves. And that is a goal that we can have and honor God in pursuing having a good marriage. Can you have a better marriage if you love your wife? Ah, uh, yeah. Yep. Yes. Can you have a good marriage if you don't love your wife? No. Actually, nope. You can't. You really can't. How about we flip and we go over and we talk about the women for a second. A woman who respects her husband will nourish a deep, important part of his person. His psychological need for respect is hardwired in by virtue of his being a man. Men and women are different. Men and women are different more than just in their parts, more than just physically. Men and women are different psychologically, mentally, emotionally. They're similar to women. There's a a Venn diagram you could draw in which there's overlap. and There's ways in which men and women both are very similar But there's also a lot that is outside of that overlap for women on the one hand and for men on the other hand. So wives who respect their husbands are meeting a need that the man has. And I say need because men pursue respect like automobiles pursue gasoline. And of course, you have somebody driving, so they're going to choose where they fuel up, and sometimes they forget to fuel up, and they're out too far away from the nearest gas station, and they run out, and they have to call for help. But men will seek respect. They pursue respect. They want to be respected, and so they compete in sports. They compete in their careers. They compete in their social circles. They debate They wrestle, they contend, they do things to try and earn respect consistently across the board. When men stop trying to pursue respect or they think that pursuing respect is inherently toxic, everything breaks down. Society breaks down. That man breaks down. Every relationship he's in breaks down. Everything that he touches is going to be not as excellent as it would have otherwise been. Men need respect. And that isn't to say that men are always doing things and being about things and saying things and carrying themselves in a way that commands respect. That's not what I'm saying. But good God-honoring men are striving to earn respect. And then when they've done the honorable thing, they've conducted themselves and they've spoken in an honorable way, they want to have respect in return. And especially when a man is in authority, if he doesn't feel respected, 
how is he supposed to proceed? Read military history and read about commanders and generals and lieutenants and captains who lead men. Read the history of businesses, of corporations, titans of commerce and industry who built major brands. Read about men who have done something worthwhile. When they lose the respect of those around them, it handicaps and paralyzes their ability to continue on leading. When there is no longer any confidence in their capacity to execute, they get discouraged and they opt out. They go into early retirement, they die prematurely, they despair, or, or they adapt and overcome. They confront the challenge head on. If they're being disrespected wrongfully, they confront the person who's being disrespectful. They challenge them. They might challenge them directly. They might challenge them indirectly. They might challenge them indirectly by proving this person's claims about them wrong. No, I'm not that way. That is not correct. That is not true. Let me show you. They might challenge the disrespect and confront it directly. You know what? Listen, the way you're engaging with me right now is highly disrespectful. I'm going to have to ask you to apologize. You can't talk to me that way. You can't treat me that way. You cannot engage with me in the way that you're engaging and expect me to still function in this relationship. I can't do what I need to do when you're undercutting me the way that you're undercutting me. If it's unintentional, hey, I just want to put you on notice so you can be aware this is something you're doing and this is the effect that it's having. If it's intentional and malicious putting you on notice, I'm not going to tolerate this. You cannot keep on like this or there will be consequences. And a man has to do that in some form or fashion. And if he doesn't, if he's unable to, if he can't, if he won't, if he's not allowed to, then it's just a matter of time before he's unable to serve and to lead in any capacity, period. No ifs, ands, or buts. No unicorns. So in the context of marriage, a man needs respect from his wife. He needs respect from this woman who he is pledged to, who he's supposed to love as Christ loved the church and laid his life down for her. And part of how the husband is supposed to love his wife is he's supposed to lead his wife. He's supposed to be the head of his home the same way that Christ is the head of the church. His wife is supposed to submit to him and respect him, and he needs her respect. And if the husband is loving his wife and the wife is respecting her husband, that ends up being this very, very beautiful picture of what God has in store for all of us. It's a preview of sorts, if you will, a foreshadowing of sorts when a Christian marriage is arranged like that. It is a little analogy in flesh and blood for all those who are around to see it. Now, what do we do when that's broken, when it's not working, when the husband is not loving his wife well? We correct. If we catch ourselves not loving our wives well, we correct ourselves. If we catch our brothers acting that way, we correct them. Hey, listen, you know what? You're being really inconsiderate to your wife right now, I think, maybe. I don't want to intrude, but I was, I was kind of not very loving. Is that really for her benefit that you're looking at 
leaving, abandoning her. You know, I knew a, a friend of mine a number of years ago who was frustrated. Him and his wife were having trouble. And he was planning on moving away, moving out, getting his own place, and being by himself. And he, th- he told me, he said, I, I think it's just, that's probably for the best. I don't think we're going to ever get past this and get over it. And I think she'd be happier and I'd be happier. And it's just time to recognize this for what it is. It's not going anywhere good. And he's got all these reasons. And he's telling me all these reasons for why he's going to step away. And I told him at the time, I said, you know what? I don't think that's the right move. I don't think that's the right call. I think that's a bad idea. And nothing that you're describing right now is unusual for marriage. The things you're talking about as being frustrations for you and for her, none of these things are insurmountable unless you want them to be. If you want them to be, then they are. She doesn't want you to leave. You are saying that you think she wants you to leave, but she doesn't want you to leave. And you know that. This is not a loving course of action towards your wife. And I can't support it. I can't agree with it. I think that's a bad idea. On the flip side, there has to be an equal appetite for somehow, some way, accountability to reach women who are not respecting their husbands. If we're all about equal treatment and equality and egalitarianism and equity and all these things, all these words that start with E that run the risk of watering down the distinction between maleness and femaleness, men and women, gender, sexuality, God's created order. If we're going to be all about all these E words, we have to recognize that women are equal opportunity offenders to men when it comes to marriages breaking down. Can men be unloving, harsh, inconsiderate? Well, yeah, absolutely. Otherwise, it wouldn't make sense that Paul writes what he does in Ephesians. It wouldn't make sense that he is telling the men in the same way husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. For no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it just as Christ does the church because we are members of his body. Paul wouldn't need to say that to husbands if there weren't a few of them who are cruel and harsh and unkind to their wives. Live with your wife in an understanding way, giving honor to her as the weaker vessel so that your prayers might not be hindered. That's what we're called to. It's not the same. It's similar. There's a Venn diagram. It's similar to what the women are called to in marriage, but it's different. It's distinct, and we have to recognize that. There's no, there's no ignoring it when we look at what the Bible says about marriage. The man's role is different. The woman's role is different. I say in the interest of equity, equality, egalitarianism, et cetera, et cetera, we should make room to challenge women when they're being disrespectful towards their husbands. But there's also a sense in which if we embrace the totality of what the scriptures say about maleness and femaleness and roles within marriage and in the church and in society, God's created order, there's a sense in which there's not supposed to be a uniform response and reaction and treatment of men and women. There isn't. Give honor to your wife as the weaker vessel. Live with her in an understanding way so that your prayers might not be hindered. The, the wife is not told that, right? She's not told the same thing that the husband is told because she's different. Paul is saying that she is the weaker vessel. She's fragile. 
She's fragile in a way that you, man, are not. You're not supposed to be fragile. Maybe she's more sensitive, but that also means she's more fragile. Maybe you're tougher, but that also means if you're not careful, you run the risk of treating her in a rough way and hurting her and wounding her. Now, so also we have to have a biblical idea of what is and is not loving and hurtful and kind and harsh and cruel and restorative and good. We have to have a a biblical understanding of that. But if the woman is being disrespectful towards her husband, there has to be a mechanism for accountability wherein maybe it's the other women in her life who come alongside and they say, hey, girlfriend, is everything all right? Here's what I'm observing. Here's what I'm seeing. And I'm a little bit concerned. There has to be an appetite for husbands to say to their wives calmly, respectfully, gently, but clearly, as clearly as Jesus spoke to his disciples, how you're interacting with this is not in accordance with what is good and what is true. It is written, etc., etc. So we'll leave it there for right now. There's more that can be said. There's more that will be said. This is not the end of the series, but we'll take an intermission and... We'll come back to this again soon. If you have some additional thoughts on this, I'd love to hear them. Challenge me if I am in error in anything that I'm saying so that I can be more correct, especially as I am looking to turn this into a book at a certain point. Help me to make this as good of a book, as helpful of a book as it possibly can be. I have to make sure my thinking on this is clear before I can go and presume to tell my sons or anyone else Here are good reasons, good arguments for marriage. Here's what biblical marriage should look like. Here's how we have a good attitude about it. I don't always have a good attitude about it, to be clear. My wife doesn't always have a good attitude about it, to be clear. Our marriage is not always as it should be, to be clear. But we will get closer to what God's plan and purpose is for marriage as an ideal, if we're aware of the ideal, and if we're being intentional about it, and if we're aiming for that ideal consistently by God's grace. So as always, thank you for listening. And until next time, God bless. You've been listening to the Garrett Ashley Mullet Show on Anchor FM. For more content like what you just heard, subscribe to this podcast on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or Spotify. Also check out thegarrettashleymulletshow.com to subscribe to email alerts when new episodes are published. As always, you can reach me with any comments, questions, complaints, objections, or insights at garrettashleymullet at protonmail.com.